Back to the New Testament. Here we are in Sydney. What line can we follow to get us to here? So, in a sense, it's um, uh, the details are much more about the last bit as to how we get to Sydney than the early bit. Hmm? The early bit with the New Testament is that the gospel spreads, but after the New Testament, we're not quite sure how it spreads. It spreads here, there, and everywhere quite rapidly, in part because uh, of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire spreading across to Britain. It's spreading down into India. You, you can travel the world, the ancient world, on the roads, on the great roads of Rome, and the gospel spread everywhere. You can tell church history in terms of the fights and quarrels of theological viewpoints. But a more interesting history for me is Rodney Stark, who talks, who writes on the rise of Christianity, and he's a um, sociologist, historian, and his point is, it, it's almost like a theory of evolution and the survival of the fittest. The, the kind of uh, decisions that Christians made over time, over three, four hundred years, meant that they expanded, whereas decisions other people made meant they, they collapsed. So the Romans weren't interested in having large families, the Christians were. The Romans weren't interested in picking up sick people or uh, the Christians were. The Romans exposed unwanted daughters uh, on the mountains. The Christians went around and picked them up and brought them into their families. You do it for three or four hundred years, then you've got a lot of people who are Christians. Um, now, we don't know who shared the gospel with whom and how these people got converted in those years. What we tend to know is who fought with whom over which theological issue. And it, within a few years of the New Testament, they are losing the plot left, right and centre in terms of Christian thinking. Um, the first documents we have after the New Testament are written by uh, Ignatius. Uh, he's martyred on the, on the way to martyrdom in Rome. He writes a series of letters to churches he's going past. And they're important to us because he quotes the New Testament. So it gives us clear evidence of what was in the first century uh, because he's quoting it in 112 AD. But what he says is Christianity's about and what it's not about is a long way from the New Testament's clarity. It's, it's all kind of confused in all kinds of issues. Clear about certain things, who, you know, that Jesus is God and so on, but, but confused. And then you get a series of what they call the post-apostolic fathers. Some of them, uh, are, many of the things they say are really very Christian and really very wonderful, especially very Christian compared to the pagan writings of the day. But compared to the New Testament, um, the difference between the apostles and them is quite marked, um, especially as they've moved away from their Judaic roots. Uh, classically, of course, coming to a man called Tertullian, um, I've got the right one, um, which doesn't sound right, um, no, Marcion is the man I'm meaning, uh, Marcion, who didn't like anything Jewish, so the whole Old Testament was ditched, and anything in the New Testament that sounded Jewish was ditched. <laughs> And so, now the good thing about Marcion is he forced us to face up to the issue as which books are in the Bible and which parts are in the Bible. So he's very useful to us in history. But in terms of Christianity, the, the New Testament was written by Jews. 
who had become Christian. Marcion's anti-Jewish. Well, hmm. so that, that's not really possible from a New Testament point of view. And he gets rejected because of it en route. But the fact that you can even produce such a thing shows how far they've fallen away from Christianity and from New Testament Christianity. One of the big philosophical things, oh, sorry, one of the big things they did, there was a series of apologists who did write and they were arguing with the cultures of their days to demonstrate that Christianity was consistent with and superior to the philosophical mood of the day. The great mood of the day was Neoplatonism. And so they had to demonstrate that Christianity was a superior form of Neoplatonism. Now, every generation has had this problem. That is, apologists set out to persuade people onto Christianity, but in the process either distort Christianity or set up ways in which people can leave Christianity. My way of explaining it has always been the, the circle and the tangents. And the tangent on is also the tangent off. But some people can't get their tangents right. And what they do is they squash the circle into an ellipse and muck it up. And so that's what happens with Neoplatonism. So much of Platonism and Neoplatonism is very Christian in the sense that it's about God. Uh, about one God, not many gods, and so on. But it's mysticism. It's just asking what sort of time period we're talking about. Hmm. Is this still within the first? The classic, century? the classic Neoplatonist Christian is Saint Augustine, who's in the fourth century. Hmm. Hmm. It's it's arguments about reality. It's it's not creation oriented. It's other world oriented. It's not word oriented. It's experiential oriented. Now, the big debate, third and fourth century, was Trinitarianism and the being of God. The great heretic was Arius, who said that Jesus was a God but not the God. He was a second God. God, the Father, created the Son. And then with the Son, created everything else. Now, this argument lasted uh, 200 years. It was a series of councils tried to work out the nature of the being of God. We take Trinitarianism fairly easily these days three persons in one God. But if you're a polytheist and you become a Christian, the idea there's only one God is difficult, let alone that's three persons. And if you're a monotheist, how do you have Jesus as God and the Father as God without winding up as denying monotheism? So it was a very hard thing for them to work out. <coughs> and they did a good job in working it out over a couple hundred years. To my mind, the conclusion of it, there were further debates on, but the conclusion happened in 451 with the Council of Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, which established that 
Jesus was both God and man at the same time. Fully God, fully man. And the key to the Chalcedonian formulation is the little Greek word theotokos, which means mother of God. This was the litmus test of orthodoxy. Can you say that Mary was the mother of God? It's not a devotion to Mary thing at all. It's a test to see whether you believe that Jesus, when he was a man, was God. Because if you can't say Mary was the mother of God, it's because you don't believe the man was God. If you believe the man was God, then Mary was the mother of God. Not meaning she was God the mother. <laughs> That's a different thing altogether. Or that we should have any veneration or devotion to her because she was the mother of God. It's just testing the divinity and humanity of Jesus. But Arius was only one of a series of different heresies that came up in the time from uh, second, third, fourth century. Uh, there was adoptionism, there was um, docetism. Adoptionism was that Jesus was a man who was adopted into Godhead. Docetism was the belief that Jesus seemed to be God, but wasn't really. Or some would even go the other way. He was seemed to be man, but he wasn't really. Uh, and so you, to get him to be actually man and actually God, and that there is only one God, but there are three persons in the one Godhead. That took several hundred years to formulate and went to a lot of discussions and debates. So when people learn church history, they learn about these debates. But how much was that really what the local church was involved in, engaged in or doing, or the evangelism of whatever, you say? A big shift happened in 311. For in 311... The Emperor Constantine uh, won the Battle of Milvan Bridge, uh, M-I-L-V-A-N, e e Milvan Bridge. <laughs> was it a, is it a bridge? Yep. Okay, right. He was at a big battle and the night before he saw a vision of the cross uh, and a voice telling him, fight under this banner and you'll win. And he did, and so he did, and so he became a Christian. Well, when the emperor becomes a Christian, then the empire becomes a Christian. And so shortly afterwards, he called a, an international conference in 314 at Arles, A-R-L-E-S, in France, at which three English bishops were present. So that's the first real reference to an organised English church. The English church is important to us. Oh dear, Brazilian, Chinese, Indian. Because... I'm from this. <laughs> uh, Hong Kongian. Uh, <laughs> because English have settled Australia and brought Christianity to Australia. So that's why we're going to have to wind through English more than other kinds of forms of Christianity. But we'll get back to the others in due time. The Battle of Milvenbridge and the victory of Constantine then led to him calling the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD because he was not happy with the idea that this newfound religion that he had, Christianity, actually was all divided over Arius and the nature of God. And so the Council of Nicaea was one of those great 
moments of history when the issue was being thrashed out. Unfortunately, while it thrashed it out the right way, there were other subsequent councils down the track which backtracked on it and it went back and forward and back and forward for the next 120 years after that. But uh, that's where you start having international councils and you can because you've got a, an emperor to, who can call everybody together and provide chariots for them and run the thing and so on. Prior to that, the Roman uh, bishop, the bishop of Rome, tried to unite people, um, but basically people told him where to get off. Um, uh, he would do it because Rome was the capital city of the world, but the other churches didn't accept his authority. So in 155 AD, he put out some edicts, I can't remember what it was now, and uh, calling people to do things, and they said no. Um, and so the claim of papacy uh, doesn't bear too much examination, really, when you look at what it was done. What united the church was Constantine, and it was a, a top-down uniting of the, of the government, but it also then corrupted, because we then became Christendom, and church and state being united like this distorts both church and state. And so that, that's what happened. Furthermore, as the empire divided, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, so did Christianity divide, which made it even worse. The division between East and West uh, was a theological and philosophical decision, division over time. The Eastern Church centred on Constantinople and all things East, such as India, became more and more platonic. Uh, the Western Church, over time, many years later, embraced Aristotle. And so there are theological differences between the Eastern and the Western Church that really it's different non-Christian philosophers they embraced <laughs> and in whom they framed their Christian thinking. Aristotle's much more um, factual, worldly, earthly than Plato, who is much more mystic and less concerned with the rationalities of the world. Very crude. This is not worth recording. Um, because... Uh, but the big fight happened in the subsequent centuries over two issues. One was the dating of Easter, because the Eastern Church followed St. John, they said, and followed the pattern of the Jewish Easter, the Jewish Passover, which all happens the same year this year, same, same weekend this year, uh, as it does from time to time. But the Jewish calendar was built on the lunar um, calendar, which means you, you wind up with 13 months a year. And so dates like Easter move back and forth across time. Whereas the Roman calendar is 
12 months and much more closely connected to the sun and therefore more accurate, though not really accurate until many hundreds and hundreds of years later when we invented things like leap years and so on. Even then, we every now and then you've got to lose a couple of minutes to, or a couple of seconds to readjust because it's not exactly as you would want it to be. But at least it meant there was a, you could control more accurately when things would be. But it meant the date of Easter kept shifting around. It's hard to believe that people would think this is important, but they did. Uh, today, I think it's a tribalism more than anything else. Because who cares, really? It's more the Orthodox Eastern churches, what is say, well, this is us, and we're not going to give this up. And the Catholic Western churches want to say, well, no, this is us, and we're not going to give it up. No one would admit they're wrong, or that it didn't matter. or So they keep... We keep going with these two dates, which is maddening, when you have the two cultures living together. So the Greeks who live here, or all the Orthodox who live here, have this date which sometimes coincides with our Easter holiday, sometimes doesn't. When you see Australia as a Christian country, it's not. It's a Western Christian country because the date of Easter public holidays is the Western Church date, not the Eastern Church date. Uh, what does Matoma do with it? the dates of Easter? Does it oh, float around, no, like no, with the same. Greeks? Same. The Westerns, yeah. yes. Sorry, who's Him. <laughs> because the apostles, as they spread, Thomas, Toma, Thomas, oh. was said to have gone to South India and preached the gospel there. Yeah. And certainly... We have no date for the beginning of Christianity in South India. It's been there ever since. So it is not impossible that Thomas went and did that. It's a long-standing tradition that Thomas did. Though he left no written records either, so there's no photographs, no videos. So it's, it's one of those... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a legend. It's, all. <laughs> it's a legend, but by saying it's a legend, you're not saying it's not true. It could be true. But they embraced the kind of Eastern Orthodox patterns generally. And because you're concerned with um, mystery, experientialism, you increase the bells and smells and the incense, the icons, the, uh, there's a huge debate on iconography, um, uh, whether or not you could have icons, uh, the iconoclasm dispute, which raged for a hundred years or so, where people said you should have no statues and others said you must. The key point being, if you have no statues of Jesus, you're teaching docetism, that he wasn't really human. But if you do have statues of Jesus, well, then you've got an idol. You're worshipping the idol. So you can see how both sides of the debate. The thing you'll notice if you go into any Orthodox church is how elaborately liturgical it is. Funny clothing they wear. Ancient languages. So the average Orthodox church is still speaking in 5th century Greek. So your average modern Greek can't understand the service, even though it's in Greek. Uh, well, you'll hear some Yesu Christu, Yesu Christu, and Kalopaskaris, you know, still there. But 
it's um, yeah, it's ancient Greek, and you don't have to listen really in a sense. You know, they uh, one of the things you will find if you go to an Orthodox church here in Sydney is the women are in there, the men are around the edges talking to each other the whole time, and then there comes a point in the liturgy where they all can join in and they all call out something or other, and then they go back talking to each other about cabbages and kings. It's a kind of community centre where the priests behind the screen are doing the holy things. It, it's, it's a very different sense of what we think church is about because it's it's experiencing the mystery of being in the tabernacle with God kind of thing. It's, it's uh, different. And so... The, the, the Orthodox tend to be very conservative on great theological truths. But the Bible is the Word of God. They don't own a copy, they've never read it, but it is the Word of God, every word of it. You know, Jesus rose from the dead physically out of the grave. He is, you know, they're fiercely resurrection and fiercely conservative of it. But what his death meant and why he died, and it's all wishy washy. And very, very much you get Jesus in the wine and the bread. But how? Ooh, that's a mystery. We well, see the Catholics, they under Aristotle, they worked out how with transubstantiation. Uh, the Orthodox aren't concerned about transubstantiation because that takes away the mystery of it. The mystery is what matters, that, that this is Jesus somehow, some way. But careful classification. So, date of Easter was one of the big fights. The other huge fight is over the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed wasn't written at the Council of Nicaea any more than the Apostles' Creed was written by the Apostles. But the Nicene Creed uh, had a clause in it, or didn't have a clause in it, depending which side you were on, that has been added or taken away, depending which side you're on. And it talks about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The, the clause is called the filioque clause, which means of the Son. <laughs> did the Holy Spirit come to us from God, or did the Holy Spirit come to us from God the Father and God the Son? Again, it's not an issue that most Protestants I know are really all that wound up about. <laughs> But it is expressive of the difference between Platonism and, and Aristotelianism, frankly. Um, the biblical information is very slight both ways. You, you really have to strain to find where from the Bible it does teach that the Holy Spirit did or did not come from the Son. They're just trying to preserve different things. One's trying to preserve the unity of the, of the Godhead. The other's trying to preserve the uh, diversity of the three persons. So if you start off with three and talk about the one, you'll come to one way of saying it. If you start off the one and talk about the three, you'll say it the other way. Um, Platonism is very concerned about the one. Uh, ultimate reality for Plato is tohen, the one. And so the unity of the, of the three persons is very important to Platonic Christians. Um, uh, whereas the... Um, the Western Church, except of the three persons who were one, rather than the one God who was three persons. That's one of those ones. Much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's very hard to work out why they are so wound up about these things, frankly. But when war waged between the Western Church and the Eastern Church, tribalism came in at a level which has never been answered. So the Catholics, in their crusade against the Muslims, ultimately uh, destroyed uh, part of the, uh, the um, Christian Constantinople as well. And the Greeks never really forgave the Catholics for that and don't blame because the Catholics never apologised. So there's just been this standoff between these two huge... Now, not everybody's in it. The, the Egyptian church, the Coptic church, it was different again. St Mark was their patron saint and they never really got themselves involved with one or the other. But they tend to be on the orthodox side of the spectrum in their theology, but they're not orthodox. They are Coptic. They have their roots independently from St Mark. and so they. Are they more evangelical? Well, we don't really at that stage yet. Well, because uh, I just know a lot of Coptic Christian. Here in Sydney, there's quite a lot of evangelicals. Egyptian Coptic. Hmm. Yeah. But the Greeks can be, in the sense that the Greeks are very conservative about things like Jesus dying for your sins and rising again from the dead and so on. And that the Bible is the word of God. And you can say to a Greek, why don't we read it? And they say, oh, I haven't got a copy. Well, I'll get you a copy. Good, well, I'd like a copy. And I'll read my Bible because I believe the Bible. And I believe the authority of the Bible. Um, and no Pope has the authority over the Bible. They, so, you know, you can relate a long way. But in the end, Greek is best. <laughs> doesn't matter how far you go down the track. Ultimately, you've got to be Greek. It's, you know. <laughs> you just got too many eyebrows. Um, so it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's strange. And the church is very authoritative in the orthodox system. But it's not as... Germanically controlling because it's Greek. <laughs> the Germans know exactly what they're doing and how to do it. And the Western Church is very organised. The Greeks are very enthusiastic. So a lot of it's cultural rather than anything else. But so by around eleven hundred, etc., the two. Christian worlds just move further and further apart. And there are some people who talk to each other, but not all that many, um, really. At the time of the Reformation, they opened up dialogue again because the Reformers were looking for friends anywhere. And they said, well, what do the Orthodox believe? And so actually in the Anglican prayer book, there's a prayer for St. Chrysostom. And the Anglican... Uh, the Reformers were very interested in early church history and you read Calvin and the like and Luther and you'll find they're often quoting the early church fathers to demonstrate that Bible belief has been retained throughout the centuries, that what they're coming to in the Reformation is not something totally new. It's, it's what Christians have believed down the centuries, which is an important apologetic against the Catholics who are saying, no, well, we're the true tradition all the way down. And they say, no, no, well, these others believe the same things that we're now teaching. So they're very uh, well acquainted with the early church fathers from 
uh, even before the division between West and East take place. But at one level you'll read the Church Fathers and you'll read a couple of pages and say, this is fantastic, and then you'll turn the page and think, is he in the same religion as I am? <laughs> it's, it's real funny stuff. Um, but they're fighting different arguments and different battles to us. One of the great ones was Saint Athanasius, and he uh, he famously argued, uh, his phrase was contra mundi, which means against the world. Uh, if everybody else was against him, he'd still say, Jesus had to be God, because otherwise his death on the cross would be insufficient. So you get you know, clarity of mind like that uh, in the middle of the debates, um, which is quite interesting because others are arguing very differently to Athanasius. But even when you read Athanasius, there are things he's saying about the sacrifice of Jesus that really, it's a funny way of expressing it. So, moving along. At the time of the 16th, 15th century with the Reformation. Ooh, jump. Yeah, well. We got, Nothing happened for 400 years. <laughs> pretty dull. Well, it, once it got divided, then <laughs> there was just no happen. connection much between yeah. 1100. And so th what's happened, though, is the Western Church got controlled by St. Thomas Aquinas, who was the great apologist for Aristotelianism. So as Augustine had reinvented Christianity to be consistent with Neoplatonism, so Thomas Aquinas, a thousand years later, or less, 1100, 1200 was Aquinas, I think, um, he showed that Christianity was Aristotelian. And so the Western Church moved philosophically further and further in that direction. Um, Roman Catholicism doesn't come into existence until after the Reformation. They, of course, want to say that they have been in existence from St. Peter. But it's just not true. The Egyptian church was never under the control of Rome. The Eastern Orthodoxy church wasn't under the control of Rome. The, the three British bishops at the Council of Arles weren't Roman Catholics because the Roman Catholics hadn't, the Bishop of Rome hadn't sent missionaries to England till, till 599 with a different Saint Augustine, same name but different man. Uh, St. Patrick, he'd been a Christian, you know, 150, 200 years before the Bishop of Rome sent anybody to evangelise England. So there was a, a church existing we don't know when it started, how it started. Could have been in the first century, because in the first century there were Roman soldiers posted in Britain. Yeah, any one of them being converted could have taken... We don't know when it started, any more than we know when it started in India. Um, it's just not the kind of thing people record in history books, unfortunately, sadly. So, there's... but. The church didn't have a, a well-defined, clear doctrine. Aquinas was the main philosophical route that people got uh, taught by. And the universities were basically Aristotelian. So the great fight that Galileo had was not against the church and Christianity. It was against Aristotelianism and 
and the teachers of the academy. Unfortunately, the teachers of the academy were all clergymen. But what they were proposing was Aristotelianism. Aristotelianism said, you know, believed in circles, uh, believed the earth was at the centre of the universe, believed... It was Aristotelianism that he was objecting to. And Aristotelianism, you didn't look at the evidence. It wasn't empirical. It was deductive. Circles are the perfect shape. The world is a perfect world. Therefore, the world must be circular. I mean, it's that kind of thinking which he had to contend with. But it came with the backing of the church. And here's the problem. of Link the church with the state. Link the church with the academy. And you distort both the church and the state and the academy. And you get them all confused together. Well, the Reformation was that kind of fight. The German Christians couldn't stand paying taxes to the Italian Christians for the sake of their degeneracy. There was widespread degeneracy. The popes were, were many of them were appalling men. The practices of the church were corrupted by money and sex. Um, uh, there was a cardinal who was appointed at three months of age. Um, you see, if you became the cardinal, you had the palace and the cardinal's lands, and people left church and money to and palaces to the church, and over centuries they gained control of huge amounts of the land, and then it got passed on from one office holder to the next, and so, you know, you, you, one of the things to do was to get a good clerical appointment for your child. Now, he didn't, of course, have a choice about being celibate, so he felt no bondage to have to do that. I mean, so you, they were, the popes had many children, and so on. It was, the place was degenerate and corrupt, and famously to raise money. And a man was going around offering indulgences to uh, you so that if you paid money to him he'd forward some of it back to the building of St Peter's at Rome and your relative would get less days in purgatory because masses would be said because you paid the money and, and this was the last straw for, for Luther to see Luther's fight about indulgences as a fight at the Reformation about it is to miss the point that was just the, the last straw uh, he and others were godly men before the Reformation. Um, there were a whole series of movements of people who were trying to get back to genuine Christianity. Uh, the Order of the, uh, the, the, the Common Brotherhood, I think it was called there, uh, something of the Common Brotherhood, just pious Christians. Uh, there were the Waldensians uh, in um, the Italian regions who... They couldn't work it out. They were poor peasant people, terribly persecuted by authorities, uh, the Waldensians. But they knew that what was happening in the church wasn't Christian. But they knew Christ was right. And so they just tried to fathom it out. When the Reformation came, uh, they sought out people like Luther, and Luther explained to them what the Bible was saying, and they immediately became Protestants. You know, they said, yeah, that's what we've been trying to say for centuries, but haven't been other work. Peter of Waldo was the man who created the Waldensians. They're known also as the Albigenses. A-L-B-I-G-E-N-S-E-S, not Jensen's, <laughs> Albigenses. 
Um, no, terribly persecuted. They're in the mountains of uh, the, the Pyrenees, isn't it, between France and Italy? Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, they were very hard to persecute properly because they were <laughs> they could hide in the mountains. But uh, yeah, but they. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was a um, one of the uh, um, crusades was against them. Not all the crusades were against Muslims. There was a crusade against the Albigenses. Mm. Hmm. They really were considered heretics. And some of them were. But not because they had no education. Luther, highly intelligent and very well educated. The Reformation came out of the universities. That's the kind of difference. Where it came from, really, was from humanist learning. Aristotelianism gave way to humanism. And humanism was a much more empirical form of study. Instead of logical deduction, you actually looked at the evidences. Well, one of the key evidences to look at was, well, what did the Bible actually say? And at that point, they said, well, what's the Greek? We've got the Latin, but what's the Greek say? What's the Hebrew say? Yeah. In, the, in the medieval church, it was illegal to uh, learn Hebrew. <coughs> so nobody knew, no Christians knew Hebrew. So they had to go amongst the Jewish scholars to find out how to read Hebrew. So as to then go and look at, well, what does the Hebrew Old Testament say? But Greek in particular, they had to go and find out how to read Greek again. Once they started reading Greek, they realised that the Latin translation was wrong. The Latin translation had been done by um, St. Jerome, 5th century. All my 5th centuries, 4th century, you take it with more than a grain of salt, won't you? I mean, I haven't prepared a talk, and I don't know. But, you know, just rare. If it turned out to be 6th or 3rd, don't be surprised. Mm -hmm. I could Google as we go along. You could, yes, but... Uh, <laughs> if you want perfect manuscripts. Keep correcting me, yes. That's right. I'll, I'll feel fun. good about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the Latin uh, was, was wrong in lots and lots of places. And when they actually started reading the Greek. And they then started looking for Greek manuscripts. And then they found that the manuscripts upon which the Latin translation had been taken was wrong. One of the great leaders of this was a man called Erasmus of Rotterdam. He never really got what, Cal- what Luther was on about, but he certainly paved the way for it. Amongst other things, he taught Greek for a couple of years in, in Queen's College, Cambridge. And he produced a Greek m- manuscript of the New Testament, which really was... I've forgotten how many, 13 manuscripts that he was able to find of the Greek New Testament, something like that. The King James is based on the 27 manuscripts, if I remember correctly, but something like 13 manuscripts. Today, we have thousands, but nobody had bothered keeping, preserving, looking after these manuscripts at this stage of the game, especially in the Western world, uh, who didn't read Greek. Only read Latin. So, now, it wasn't just Erasmus. 
There was a uh, man, Zimenez, in Spain. Was he a Cardinal Zimenez? Who produced a New Testament in Greek actually just before Erasmus did. It was the mood of the period was, let's go back to historical uh, documents. Let's look at them themselves. Let's look at them in their original languages. That's what gave rise to the Reformation more than almost anything else. Because once they did that, they started to realise what the Bible was teaching and what was commonly understood were quite different and what was presented in the Latin was wrong. Classically, for example, was the word metanoia. Metanoia means M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. Um, metanoia is a Greek word which the Latin translated do penance but it means repent it's the, it is the basic word for repentance meta means change noia means mind it's a change of mind do penance is what the priest tells you to do in order to pay for your sins. So you go to confession and say, you know, I thought evil thoughts of Pedro yesterday, and the priest says, you've got to do penance, say the Lord's Prayer ten times. That's doing penance. Well, there's a world of difference of getting into the kingdom of heaven by repentance and getting into the kingdom of heaven by doing penance. <laughs> it's, it's massive difference. That's a classic of the kinds of things they discovered. That so many parts of the scriptures had been distorted by bad translation into Latin. What you haven't realised is, it was in the Second Vatican Council, which occurred in 1970, something like that, was... No, I was. Um, was the first time that Roman Catholics were given permission to read the Bible in any language other than Latin. Wow, 1970. My lifetime. And even then, you're only to read it with the priest. Now, that's Roman Catholicism. I'm telling you that comes after the Reformation. That is, Christianity before the Reformation was muddled. There were all these different ideas, practices in different churches. Rome was pushing its way, but even Rome was not consistent. <laughs> After the Reformation, they had a thing called the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent met for 20 years. The first meetings of the Council of Trent, Protestants and non-Protestants were together. And it was... You know, let's have a peace settlement. Let's work out what we believe in common. After the first session, they worked out they had nothing in common and so the, Catholic, the Protestants left. Then for the next 20 years, the council met and redefined Catholicism in terms of we're not Protestants. So they said, we do not believe in justification by faith. Well, they said it more strongly than that. Anyone who believes that you are justified by faith alone in Christ is condemned. Anybody who believes the authority of the Bible over the Pope is condemned. Everybody's damned, anathema. Yeah. And so just a long list of everything Protestants believed wow. 
anathema, 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 anathema. So they redefined Catholicism in terms of anti-Protestantism. But prior to the Reformation, nobody had ever defined justification by faith alone as being wrong or being right. Just hadn't been worked out. With the Reformation, um, one of the big shifts that happening was we moved from communalism to individualism. Up until then, you really had to go along with your community. And then, in a sense, with your nation. The nation states hadn't grown in Europe. They were still very divided. England owned part of France. Germany was made up of lots of lots of different kind of uh, little kingdoms, little fiefdoms. Little... And so it wasn't like a, you wouldn't want to draw the map of Europe. You know, it'd be a nightmare. Uh, it's complicated as enough as it is at the moment, but it really was hundreds of little estates, basically, uh, held together in places by language or by powers. But by the Holy Roman Emperor, he people had a loyalty to him. He could interfere in the laws and, and, and sort out fights between people. But your communalism really mattered. Which meant when the gospel came into different places, the communities changed. So in Switzerland, there were a series of cantons. And as one canton got converted, it would become Protestant. But the next door one would be Catholic, and the one over there would be Protestant. But kind of everybody in it would be. But because our conversion was individual conversion, then individuals, for conscience reasons, stood against their community. Well, that was really an unheard of thing before. And it led to lots of martyrdoms, but it also led to lots of fights and wars and lots of migrations, lots of people fleeing from one part of the world to another so as to be given safety. Calvin gets converted, he flees to Switzerland. When he goes in Switzerland, he gets into trouble with the local Geneva authorities, so he flees to uh, Strasbourg and lives there for a while. Then the people from Geneva... Uh, recognise that they are Protestants and he's the best Protestant going, so they go to Strasbourg and invite him back to Geneva, where he lives out the rest of his life. But he really was a Frenchman on the run <laughs> the whole time. England has all kinds of... I'm into England now. England has all kinds of Christian influences at different times. Early Celtic Church was combined in with the Roman Catholic Church from the south. Um, at the Synod of Whitby that I mentioned last week with the wrong date. And it continues for some time. But different voices rise. One of the famous ones is John Wycliffe. Now Wycliffe is a hundred years before Luther. He's a contemporary of a man called Jan Hus, H-U-S-S. Hus was a Czechoslovakian, um, uh, bohemian, and Hus really believed almost everything Luther believed and taught nearly everything Luther taught and was burnt at the stake as a heretic a hundred years before Luther. Um, and so one of the things that Luther was accused of was being a Hussite, and 
he had never really studied Hus until that moment, but then he came to see, yeah, well, actually, I am. Well, in England, Wycliffe was like that. Wycliffe came to Christian understanding and saw things very clearly, and he translated the Bible into English. Though he translated the Latin Bible into English. These are really a hundred years before the real coming of humanism and Greek scholarship. He couldn't, he couldn't read Greek, but he knew that we had to move out of Latin, so he just moved it into English language. Um, and he started a movement called the Lollards. The Lollards were poor people who uh, would rise early in the morning and recite the Bible to each other and teach each other memory verses. And so for a hundred years before the Reformation, you had these people who believed the Bible and who were teaching about Jesus and his unique lordship and questioning the authority of the Pope. Wycliffe himself was a clever man. He was a, an Oxford University lecturer, but he was kind of, uh, not punished, but he was disciplined for his strange views. But that's what I mean when I say the Catholic Church was very much more confused. The, the, the Western Church was a confused muddle of different viewpoints before the Reformation. You couldn't actually say he was a heretic, though they would say Hus was. But there are other people who believed and taught all kinds of strange things. Many of them, the things we'd believe. Uh, but it meant that when the Reformation came to England, there were really a, a whole host of these underground Lollard meetings taking place. It wasn't, it wasn't just a top-down thing. There was a bottom-up element to it as well. The key part of the Reformation came from Erasmus. When he was there in Queen's College, Cambridge, teaching Greek, he was one of the leading European scholars of his day, and Greek was the the trendy subject to do. And so some of the brightest young men were there studying Greek with him. They, his Greek New Testament was published and it was, uh, it was Cambridge is the key to this, uh, because it was taken down the river to the river came to Cambridge and uh, it was sold out of Cambridge. And a group of scholars met in a hotel called the White, Ho White Horse Hotel and read the Greek New Testament to each other each day and, and worked out what the gospel was about uh, and remarkably were, were saved. But of course, in those days, you get a whole bunch of Cambridge men converted, you've got the leaders of tomorrow's church and they turned out to be exactly that. And so no longer just have the kind of peasant lollards giving their Wycliffe English mistranslation, you now had really uh, top-notch, clever people from Cambridge looking at translating and wanting to translate the Bible into English, reading it for themselves, understanding what was happening over in Europe with um, Luther. An Oxford man who read the Bible in his Greek and got converted was William Tyndale. He, um, he believed everything Luther believed pretty well independently of Luther, just reading his Greek New Testament. Well, the thing just, it screamed at them when they saw it. Mm. And so he started translating the Bible into English, saw this was a problem, went across to Holland and uh, Belgium, Holland. 
he went across over there <laughs> and, and uh, translated his, the Bible, or lots of it, into English. His first published... Um, from Greek? From Greek, oh yeah, and from Hebrew. To do so, he actually made up words, English words. So he made up the word Passover. Uh, yeah, all kinds of phrases for him. Atonement. He made words up in order to capture what was... He, very clever man, very able man. And his aim was to make the Bible so that the ploughboy could read it. That was his, his great aim, the ploughboy being the kind of most basic working person that you could have. And so he didn't use the word church, he used the word assembly. Because that's what ecclesia means, it means assembly. As soon as you write the word church, people are thinking of the thing on the hill or the Catholics or something or other. But assembly is what the word is. So he really did well. Uh, he sent his first manuscript over to London and uh, spies found out about it, told the Bishop of London. The Bishop of London bought the whole consignment and uh, then burnt it publicly which suited uh, Tyndale because it meant that he got all his money for his translation and he could do a better second <laughs> edition. <laughs> so those great mistakes of life. And so, London it was, yes. So he kept on doing it. Well, they were after him. And Henry VIII, finally, his spies finally caught him and they burned him at the stake in Antwerp. So it's Belgium. He died in Antwerp. I don't know whether it was Antwerp now that I've said it. Yeah, now you're doubting so, that. Well, it's all just coming out of my memory, this, I don't know. It, it was Henry VIII who was burning Protestants in the 1520s. Because, and Henry was given the title, because he wrote against the Protestants, he was given the title by the Pope, Defender of the Faith. Which they've still got today. Oh, our present Queen is called the Defender of the Faith, but it's a title given by the Roman Catholic Pope for writing against the Protestants. Henry was a very clever man. Nasty man. Awful man, but very clever. And the Tudors were all clever. Um, but uh, Edward and Elizabeth both read Greek and Latin. You know, they were... They were clever, clever people who were well tutored in their in their languages. Um, now, the English Reformation from the top down was a constitutional fight within this family called the Tudors. Tudors are an easy part of English to remember. Henry the Seventh, fourteen eighty five, through to I don't know fifteen whatever. Um, Henry VII was the, the last of the pre-Reformation kings, so to speak. Uh, he finished off the end of the War of the Roses between the, the, uh, the Whites and the Reds and set up the dynasty. Henry VIII, because of his marital problems, broke with Rome, but he didn't want to break theologically. He just wanted to break constitutionally. However, you can't do one without the other, because once you no longer acknowledge the authority of the Pope, then you shift. What shifted him was a brilliant man called Thomas Cranmer, who was one of the Cambridge scholars who read their Greek New Testaments. Now, he was brilliant, tortured soul. 
in, in those days, see, the king's word was law. King didn't like you. You were the head of the next day. Mm. So being a courtier in the court of Henry VIII was just terrifyingly dangerous. And he was a rascable, nasty man. And so Cranmer struggled to understand the Protestant faith properly and work out all its implications. But because he was a great brain, he did work it out. He just wasn't quick. And that makes it frustrating for people who want to say, well, why didn't he just kind of stand up and say, bang? Well, he had to work it out. <laughs> he was working it out from scratch. And if he made a mistake, he was likely to be killed. There's a brilliant biography of Thomas Cran uh, of, of Cranmer written by McCulloch. Big fat thing, really interesting if you want to understand how, how to struggle. In the end, of course, he was killed. He was burnt at the stake for the faith. But that's a little later on. Henry dies and his son, Edward, becomes the king. Edward's an out-and-out -out Protestant and the people that Henry puts in charge of him are his Protestant uncles. And so the Church of England then swings to not just kind of uh, not Roman, it now swings totally to being Protestant. Uh, how it's done top-down is through prayer books. All other prayer books are destroyed. Every church has to use the prayer book written by Cranmer. He writes one in 1549. The Roman Catholics who are still there say, oh, well, we don't buy this book because we can make it mean what we believe. So he rewrites mm. it in 1552 and he makes it absolutely clear that there's no way they could have believed it. And so they hated it. The difference is seen in communion, for example. In 1549, the words of distribution is, take and eat. No, the words is, is, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. They said, well, that's right, you're giving us the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in 1552, he got rid of those words and said, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Well, there's no way you can think that's the bread because you're feeding on him in your heart, right? Later on, the two sets of words are put together. Good compromise from a uh, Elizabethan prayer book. But Edward, out and out Protestant, trouble is he dies at 16. <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> Really sad. It's one of the questions I've got for God when I get there is to find out why. Um, and worse still, he's replaced by his sister Mary, who is an out-and-out -out Roman Catholic. Uh, she is the daughter of the the Catherine who Henry VIII first divorced, and the whole fight was about. And so she then brings Catholicism into England for five or six years. In the process, she, a lot of the leading English churchmen flee to Europe, nearly all of them to Geneva, which Protestantizes them more than ever. Those that don't flee uh, are burnt at the stake, like Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, etc., which arouse the ire and antagonisms of the community against Mary, because these people weren't criminals. They were well-known, good and godly men. You might disagree with their theology, but they were not criminals, and to have them 
burnt at the stake. What's more, they didn't know how to burn them at the stake properly. And so they stood in the fires preaching sermons. And <laughs> it's very hard to ignore what a man says when he's being burnt at the stake. You know, the sermons that they were preaching had a huge impact and the word spread everywhere. So later on they learned that you had to stuff their mouths with things so to stop them preaching from the fires. Um, but then tie, tie gunpowder around their neck so their heads got blown off quickly and then things like that. Like could be more so yes yes better than being drawn quartered drawn and quartered that's that hung drawn and quartered is the worst but i won't go into the details of it lest you have nightmares so uh but now fortunately for us mary died after five or six years childless um always mad but childless and she's replaced by elizabeth the first who then reigns for 40 odd years and she's a protestant but she's a shrewd politician. So she reissues Edward's book with modifications. <laughs> it's still clearly Protestant, but it's softened. And ever since then, the prayer book has been softened. Um, in the 17th century, uh, the struggles of the Protestants against the monarchy gives rise to Oliver Cromwell, and for 20 years they reign, he reigns effectively without a king in the Republic as it was. It wasn't a Republic, it was called the Commonwealth. Um, and uh, they were out and out Protestants, and the family they dislodged, Charles I, who they beheaded, uh, were the Stuart family. When the Stuarts came back into power in the late uh, 17th century, 1660s, uh, they promised to come back as Protestants, but in fact they were secretly Catholics. Mm. And so, but when they tried to reintroduce Catholicism, people revolted and chased them out again. And so in 1688, we had the Glorious Revolution, which was when they brought in William of Orange from Holland to be the king. And uh, the, he then went across to Ireland and had a big battle, which is where you get the Orangemen from, hmm. and the Orange Lodge, because he was Protestantizing Britain and Ireland. Um, but he co-jointly with his, reigned with his wife and set up the House of Orange, <coughs> and that led to Protestantism. Now, in all these kind of fights, you know, in 1600, whatever it was, uh, a Roman Catholic called Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. Well, that didn't endear the Roman Catholics to British people generally. And <laughs> so uh, each time the Catholics came, like Mary and the Stuarts, they botched it so badly that the community continued to grow in their Protestant alliances and feelings, and the prayer book kept on informing them of a Protestant worldview. By the 18th century, by the 18th century, you then wind up with a low church Protestant denomination, which is a national church. But, dead as a doornail, until some people called the Wesleys and George Whitfield discover the great news of being born again and start preaching, and this evangelical revival takes place. 
The Reformation is about justification by faith alone, and it's still a community thing. The evangelical awakening was about spiritual regeneration and was a much more individualistic thing. And the two Wesleys and Whitfield are the name that is best known, but you can get a lovely book by J.C. Ryle on the 12, um, uh, the 12 great preachers of the evangelical awakening. And there are all these different men who are going around the countryside at the same time preaching the gospel, had come to it almost independently of each other. A great man called Grimshaw up in York, uh, Yorkshire, up at Ilkley, uh, I-L-K-L-Y, you know Ilkley? What's Ilkley famous for? Three things, Grimshaw's one. Ilkley. Ilks. <laughs> <laughs> there's a great moor up there, and so there's a song about Ilkley moor by that. Oh, that's a great song. It's a song you teach your children on long car journeys before you have television in the back seat. Where has that been since I saw thee? I saw thee on Ilkley Moor by the hat. Where has that been since I saw you? Where have you been since I saw you? I saw you. On Ilkley Moor by that, on Ilkley Moor by that, on Ilkley Moor by that. It goes on and on and on. What were you doing up there? You'll catch a death of cold. If you catch a death of cold, then you'll die. If you die, then we'll have to bury you. If we bury you, then the worms will come and eat you. If the worms come and eat you, the ducks Cheery. will eat the worms. If the ducks eat the worms, we'll eat the ducks, and then we'll have eaten you. Oh, oh yeah. But with all those, on will be more about us, and you'll be more about us. It's actually, yeah, a good 40 miles down the road before you finally get to this great victory of eating each other. Ilkley, Ilkley Moor, dreadful Yorkshire wild country. Now, what was the other thing that happened up there? There was a clergyman called Mr. Bronte, oh, yes. who had some fairly famous daughters. Mm. And a very obscure son. Hmm? Yeah, and a very son. obscure son, alcoholic son. Um, yeah, the Brontes lived up there, um, in the very place where Grimshaw lived. Grimshaw preached the gospel there all over all over the Yorkshire uh, moors and people were converted left, right and centre, filled the churches, huge churches, um, but filled with his preaching. Great, great gospel preacher. Just in that area. Right? Wesleys and Whitfield, they moved everywhere, so that's why they're better known. But in all kinds of places all over England, Britain, this awakening happened, spread across to America and the, the frontier land, all kinds of people started getting converted. It was extraordinary. The 18th century was full of these people. And so 40-50% of England were Bible-believing Christian people like you and I mean to be. It was an astonishing moment in history. could only happen in, in Reformed faith, but uh, I mean, you can't really be an evangelical Catholic. It was, it was a Protestant thing. But it wasn't justification by faith alone. It was about being regenerated individually and personally. Towards the end of that century then, you start to see all kinds of really powerful movements happening. The anti-slavery movement of Wilberforce, and John Newton, the, um, uh, is a key element of it. But there are other things. Shaftesbury and his fights against uh, child labour and, and prostitution. Um, temperance. temperance movements became very strong. The Methodists were very much against drinking. 
alcoholic. Is that where that would yeah, been? the Rechabites will come from there. There's, there's all kinds of social consequences to the land, which is seen in Victorian kind of properness and legalism, but by then they'd lost the spiritual drive that lay behind that kind of morality. Suffragettes instead. Yeah. Put their energies into such so social causes. It was, but it was really a, a, a magic moment in one sense. In a very dark period of history because industrialization was racking the places with cities and all kinds of things. Now, 1770, Captain Cook comes here. 1788, so 18th century, end of the 18th century, Australia's comes into being. They send out the first fleet out here by a man called William Pitt, who was the Prime Minister, and his best closest friend from Cambridge days is William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce says to him, you can't send X thousand people out to the ends of the earth without a clergyman. And Pitt basically says, well, there's no clergyman whose right mind would go. And so Wilberforce says, if I can find one, will you send him as the chaplain? He said, if you find one, you can well, there was a society called the Yellen Society, Y-E-L-L-A-N-D, which took poor Yorkshiremen who were converted and gave them a scholarship to go through Cambridge. So one of these Yellen scholars was a man called Richard Johnson, so they rang him up basically and said, mate, you're the man. Forget your Cambridge degree. <laughs> We've got a job for you called Botany Bay. That's so how he came. So you see, the first gospel preaching here in Australia came an evangelical from Yorkshire called Richard Johnson, hand chosen by John Newton and William Wilberforce. Now, he, he was a good man, terrible time. The government didn't want him, the convicts didn't want him, no one wanted him. Um, but he, he was a faithful man, a good man. Uh, he bought cats, that was a big mistake. <laughs> Depending on whether you like cats or not. Hmm? Depending on whether you well, like cats or not. Just Australia has a problem with Australia. cats. <laughs> but, you know. I don't know if his cats escaped. Yeah, but maybe he kept a good The first cats in Australia were bought by the clergyman. Yeah, that would have been embarrassing. And the first rabbits in Australia were bought by a clergyman. <laughs> oh, man. Repent. <laughs> 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 no, it was not. No. Well, now, in the early part of the um, Evangelical Awakening, by the way, they started forming societies. Nobody had societies prior to this. It was, things were given government approval. You had a, a crown approval for something. You just didn't start up something. They did. One of them being the Church Missionary Society. And the Church Missionary Society sent missionaries here, there and everywhere, including to South India where they met up with these Christians in South India and explained the gospel to them. And a whole bunch of them got converted. This is 19th century, isn't it, brother? Yep. Uh, and they reformed the church down there and established the Martoma Church as d different from the Orthodox Church of South India. But still orthodoxy in its kind of appearance, but evangelical in its teaching. Well, and 
then you finally start exporting people from South India to Australia and you wind up with a Martoma church here in Sydney. The Anglican church sets up here in Sydney as part of the establishment of the prison because Sydney was a prison and the chaplain was the chaplain of the prison, paid for by the British government. They continued to pay clergymen until the last one died out. The last one to die of, uh, from English pay was the Dean Cowper, who, who uh, lived to a grand old age in his 90s and was still drawing an English pension and English pay. Mm -hmm. Up until I think about whenever he died, was it? 1901 or something like that. It was extraordinary length of time he was here getting an English pay. Um, they, um, his father was the first clergyman to come out here as a parish clergyman as opposed to a prison chaplain. So Samuel Marsden was the second prison chaplain, which is why, in a sense, he could be dragooned into this job of being a, a magistrate and flogging the prisoners, etc. He was a great evangelical, and, and as such, he was very concerned for missionaries, tried desperately hard to evangelise the Aborigines without any seeming success, but he found the Maoris were very much more open to the gospel. And so he had whatever number of chips it is. His plaque is down here. It's worth reading all the things he did. But the trips he went back and forward to New Zealand preaching the gospel to the Maoris. This year, this Christmas, is the 200th anniversary of the first sermon preached in New Zealand. Because Samuel Marsden preached it on Christmas Day, 1814. Um, so, and lots and lots of Maoris were converted. Uh, and he's known as the Apostle to the New Zealand, and they quite respect him over there, much as he's much hated over here. Christianity really struggled here because people didn't want it. The free settlers that were here were money grubbers. The convicts were convicts. And although, you know, people write it up, oh, this poor person's in seven years for stealing half a loaf of bread, most of them out here were murderers, thugs, assassins. They were. They were really were. And I guess they kind of got worse by hanging out with each other. They did. Prison always does. They did. It was awful. Uh, and so, and church was you know, compulsory attendance at church. That really made them feel good. I mean, it was. That's why they burnt it down? It was really bad. Yes, the first church that uh, he paid for, Johnson paid for it his own money, and when it was up, only a few weeks, and they burnt it down. Uh, it was terrible hard. And Marsden was the right man for the job because he was as hard as nails. He really was. He was a tough Yorkshireman. Uh, and he became a very successful sheep farmer. He was the father of the sheep industry of Australia. Don't believe the John MacArthur story. The first financial fleece from Australia sold in Britain came from Marsden's farms. Um, he was an extraordinary man. Uh, and a, a real Bible-believing Christian, living in extraordinarily difficult terms and times. Um, there's a very good biography of him by a man called Yelland, Professor Yelland, who, uh, over the period of researching him, became more and more Christian himself, died a couple of years ago, but he wound up being a church member over at um, Lavender Bay. Um, now, other factors may have been, I didn't, didn't know him very well, I didn't know him, but... Uh, uh, certainly the book indicates a fair understanding of what an evangelical Christian man could be and an understanding of how flawed as a personality somebody like Marsden was, even though he was. I mean, for him as a working class man to become the senior chaplain of a colony was a huge social class jump up that 
wouldn't cross our minds. <laughs> and so maintaining appearances became an important thing for him in a way that it shouldn't have. Um, because he was in the aristocracy now, <laughs> um, which was something he should ne would never have been in England. As the colony grew, so the gospel was taken out to other places. It took a long time. Uh, the, the colony went up the coast rather than going west. In 1826, there were limits to how far you're allowed to go out. That's what the squatters were about. They broke the, the, the limits of settlement and went out beyond settlement and just took over land uh, that they were not entitled to. But the church slowly went out with the people. There were some brilliant things done, especially amongst the Aborigines. There's a man up in Nelson Bay called Threckled, T-H-R-E-K-A-L-D. And Mr. Threckled, in the 1820s, was a missionary to the Aborigines. And he lived amongst them and learnt their language and their cultures and taught them to read their own language and translated parts of the Bible into the, in the 1820s. All the kinds of cultural sensitivity things. Um, he helped explain them to the white men. He protected them. He looked after them. It all was happening back then. The Christians were not the cultural imperialists that the English culture was. They were, the Christians were the few people who actually cared for the Aborigines and tried to help them. Threckled is an extraordinary man uh, in what he did for people uh, up in that area. Uh, and there are still some very fine Christians. I generally, when we go on holidays, have, uh, have a meal with one of the Christian leaders, elders up there in that part of, uh, uh, of New South Wales. And uh, uh, lovely Christian people and a long tradition of Christianity in that part of New South Wales. Um, but in general, we found evangelising the Aborigines extraordinarily difficult. Um, they were, from a cultural point of view, some of the most primitive peoples that Westerners ever had to come across. Uh, they were hunter-gatherers uh, in a very poor country. We thought the land was empty because when we went there, there was no one there. What we didn't understand was they were there 20 years ago and they were coming back in 20 years' time. Yeah, but it looked empty when we got there because it was empty. They weren't there. I mean, there are just so many classics. I mean, the, for the Aborigines to look a person in the eyes is to try and gain the spirit. So you've got to look away. To the Englishman, someone who won't look you in the eye is shifty and untrustworthy. What chance did that conversation have of getting off the ground? <laughs> you know, it just, it was, it was doomed, that whole relationship. But the Christians did try better and further than almost anybody. It was very impressive what they did. Failed as they might have, they really tried. But they had other problems. See, there were children being born and just let loose because most of the families weren't married. And so the convicts, when they got released, you know, they, the place was chaos. So we had to start orphanages, we had to start schools, we had to start hospitals, we had to... Almost every social, cultural improvement uh, in Australia came out of the Christians. Although we were the tiny little element <laughs> that no one wanted. Now, as the Anglican Church went away, 
the 19th century, something dreadful happened in, 19, in 1833. There was a sermon preached in Oxford called the Great Assize Sermon. A-double-S-I-Z-E. It was preached in the University Church by a man called Pusey, who was the professor of poetry at Oxford University. And uh, that was the start of what is called the Anglo-Catholic or Tractarian movement. It's called Tractarians because they published a series of tracts, 90 tracts in fact. It's called Anglo-Catholic because they tried to go back before the Reformation, back to Catholicism. It's commonly called High Church because they reintroduced all the old Catholic haberdashery. Candles were part of that world because that was before gas and electricity, but candles became religious things rather than just functional things. Incense, parades, processions, different robes, standing on different sides of the table, calling at the altar, um, changing the prayer book services, uh, calling themselves Father. They, injured, they became more Catholics than the Catholic. That's 1833. Please take notice very carefully of the dating of it because most people think Anglo-Catholicism is the old way and we evangelicals are the novelty people. But in fact, we were here from the time of the Reformation, from the time of Edward in the 16th century. Edward got rid of all those things. In fact, Henry got rid of some of those things. Processions were got rid of by Henry. Uh, incense was got rid of by, I think, Henry. Can't remember now. So these high church people, they're the Johnny-come-latelys. Because they were talking about going back to medieval times, people think they are actually ancient. But the medieval thing they went back to was not the medieval thing that existed then either. They reintroduced all Catholicism into a Protestant church. And their 90 tracts were designed to try and prove that Anglicanism always was like this and that the Protestants are Johnny come latelys who really don't know what they're on about. It failed in the end. The 90th tract, written by a man called Newman, the 90th tract tried to prove that the 39 articles were really Catholic. Well, it was absurd. And uh, he saw it as absurd and he he left and became a Roman Catholic and went on to become a cardinal. Cardinal John Henry Newman. Um, and in fact, many of them did leave and became Roman Catholics. And many of the children of the evangelicals got sucked into it, which is really sad. So Wilberforce's children all went off the rails. Some became Roman Catholics, some became... Soapy Sam Wilberforce, who's famous for the great debate against Darwin, was one of Wilberforce's sons. He didn't become a Roman Catholic, but he certainly became a Catholic-y kind of bishop. And so through the 19th century in England, more and more of these bishops became Tractarian Catholics. Why did the bishops become it? Well, because it all centred at Oxford University. So sometimes it's called the Oxford Movement.
Yeah. Oxford University trained the bishops. So as people got trained at Oxford, they became Catholic, and so they went out in the ministry and in due time became bishops. You could become a bishop from Cambridge, but it was more common from Oxford. Oxford's always seen itself as a bit more upper class than Cambridge. Cambridge supported the uh, Cromwell. Cromwell came from Huntington, just outside of, uh, not Huntington, but a uh, town just up from, what's, what's the big uh, cathedral just up there from there, from Cambridge? Um, it's in the, it's in the, it's in an island in the middle of a swamp. Um, can't think of it. That's where, it came, that's where um, he came from. So many of the Protestants came from Cambridge. The roundheads who fought against it, the, the royalists, they were Oxford men. So Oxford's always been a little bit more uh, conservative, royalist, uh, upper class than Cambridge has, which has always been the home of Protestantism. Uh, these things change over time, but that still there's that air to it. So the bishops were trained at Oxford. Now, the trouble was this was the British Empire. The 19th century was the high water mark of the British Empire. Victoria ruled the world, you know, even when I went to school. Our map, it was, most of the world was pink, you know, uh, because pink was the colour of the British Empire, and it was, it was already pink everywhere. It was just extraordinary. So, and who would go out and be bishops? out in the far-flung colonies of the world by Oxford men. So within 10, 15 years, high churchmanship travelled the whole world. It was astonishing. It, it just it just took over against the wills of many of the average churchgoer who couldn't understand what was happening. Terrific fights happened, but they just persisted, and so they did. Australia was contaminated with it. Um, but we had a couple of escapes. First escape was we were the ends of the earth and no one wanted to come here from Oxford. <laughs> and so by the time it was coming around for us to get a new bishop, we learnt what they were like and didn't want to have one. And so we got Bishop Barker, who was an out-and-out -out evangelical, and he was here for 25 years. And, I mean, we had one, Broughton, who was slightly touched by it, but he was a bit too early to be really influenced by it. The next one we got, now that evangelical called Barker, Barker College, founder of, uh, of um, the girls' school. His wife started the girls' school at um, Waverley, um, St. Catherine's, uh, that's the oldest girls' school in Australia, founded by Mrs. Barker to educate the daughters of clergy. This is classic 19th century. Uh, they lived out of Randwick. And so uh, they really set the Diocese of Sydney up. But every time a bishop was appointed outside of Sydney, they went and got an Englishman, of course, and the Englishman they would get would be high church. And so as the different dioceses broke away from Sydney, they all went up the candlestick, one after another. <laughs> it was dreadful. 
Melbourne was sufficiently independent and Melbourne stayed true to evangelicalism until the 1920s. Well, later, the, the bishop in, in the 1920s was a bishop, Archbishop uh, Perry, thorough evangelical man. So Melbourne and Sydney stood out. In the 19, late 1950s, early 60s, Melbourne chose a high churchman for the first time. And uh, he, from 1960 to 1990, Melbourne has 180 parishes. From 1960 to 1990, 60 of those parishes ceased to be evangelical and became high church. 60 of 180. Now, some of them were high church before that. So the swing happened, but it happened under, but it was as late as the, you know, the 1960s and 1990s was the, but everywhere else it happened back in the 19th century. Perth, Bathurst, Newcastle, Brisbane, Adelaide, they all went up the candlestick. And the Anglo-Catholic movement intellectually collapsed by the 1920s. That is, by the 1920s it became impossible to sustain that the prayer book and the articles of Anglicanism were actually Catholic in their teaching. It just, it was just, you couldn't sustain it intellectually. But by then, liberalism had come in. And so under a man called Bishop Gore, G-O-R-E, a new thing came called liberal Catholic. So the, the John Henry Newmans and the Puseys and people like that who were the original Anglo-Catholics, they believed in the resurrection, they believed in the incarnation, they believed it. They didn't believe in penal substitutionary atonement, they didn't believe in the sole authority of scripture, they didn't believe uh, in the ministry of all Christians, but they certainly did believe in the creeds. But by the 1920s, the men, the liberals now took over. But the liberals took over high church practices. So you have men dressed up like the Mikado and believing next to nothing. And that has been the dominant form of Anglicanism for the rest of the 20th century. Which is why you then wind up with uh, ordaining homosexuals and mm. ordaining women and everything else because they don't theologically they're not committed to anything conservative theologically they're liberal but the one thing they hate are evangelicals because one we believe these things as they're written and they can't get rid of us because the prayer book says it and when they tried in the late 19th century we took them to the privy council and won lawsuits against them so we know what we believe and the law supports us and secondly because we won't get dressed up like the Mikado. The first Archbishop of Canterbury to wear a mitre was in the 1920s. So from 14, from 1559 to 1920s, no bishop had been wearing mitres. But since the 1920s, they've all put it back on, except in Sydney. And Armadale, and yeah, we've won back oh, a couple of dioceses. <laughs> you see, um, now uh, so they all dress up. 
all the time. There's a picture on the Sydney Anglican website at the moment of five archbishops saying something about refugees. You have a look at them. They're all they're all dressed the same, low church dressing, because they're in a combined meeting, and in a combined meeting they've got to agree with what the law says, so they all dress down like we tell them to. But they all wear a cross around their neck, except the Archbishop of Sydney. Right? I mean, it's just, you know, and so they, they, they practice the real presence of Christ on the table, so they don't believe the real presence of Christ is anywhere other than a grave somewhere in Jerusalem that we've lost. So they're practicing the real presence of the real absence. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's a crazy church. Late 19th century, early 20th century. See, the, the high watermark of human um, aspirational uh, morality was the Edwardian period. Victoria dies 1901, First World War is 1914. And in that period, people thought that man had come of age, civilization had arrived, and it had arrived through Christianity, so Christianity was the best form of religion, but it had arisen evolutionarily. And so that's actually what we were moving away from. You don't have to now believe the details of Christianity, you just believe the ethics and morality of Christianity because they have taught us to be loving and kind and just and fair through a series of legends and myths about Jesus. That kind of liberalism uh, was a, a university way of thinking. Um, now, the First World War destroyed it because the civilised cultured men of, the, of Europe spent four years butchering and murdering um, a whole generation of young men. It was just, it was appalling. And the end of that was very hard to believe that man was civilised or that Christianity had civilised anybody. But they then didn't, well, some then did return to a more conservative Christianity. That's what neo-orthodoxy is about and a man called Karl Barth, because Karl Barth, the Swiss-German uh, destroyed by the First World War, all that he, he believed, went back and read the Epistle of the Romans and discovered that the Bible teaches that all men are sinful. And he said, well, that makes better sense of what I've just been through then. And so he went back into recreating. But he was still, he couldn't come at the fact the Bible was word for word true. The Bible's true when it speaks to you. And it spoke to him powerfully about human sinfulness. And so Bart dominates the 20th century, the rest of the 20th century in intellectual theology, recreating Christianity on a thing called neo-orthodoxy. So it's not really orthodoxy, it's neo-orthodoxy, it's a new orthodoxy, to which a lot of it is very good, but that's not really, he still can't come at accepting the orthodox truth. So you now get Bartian, Anglo-Catholics, rather than just liberal Anglo-Catholics. Uh, they will believe a lot of things, but they won't in the end believe what you believe. The, the, the Bible is only the word of God when it speaks to you. So, for example, I was at a national synod where they were discussing a new prayer book, which I disliked, and I lost every argument that week. 
one of the arguments was when you finish your reading, you say, this is the word of the Lord. They wanted to change it to hear the word of the Lord, which they did. They succeeded in changing it. Now, it sounds the same to the uninitiated, but actually it's not the same. Because I'm saying, this is the word of the Lord. They're saying, listen for the word of the Lord in it. It's not the word of the Lord, but you might hear the Lord speak to you when this is being read. That's part. Three, it's it's almost, you know, you're going to hear the word of the Lord in the Bible, but (laughs) it's not actually the word of the Lord. So there's that kind of Anglican around now. Well, again, you can see the Lord might be teaching us that homosexual marriage is all right. The Lord certainly has teached. The, the Lord taught us that uh, divorce is all right. Then He taught us that birth control is all right. Now He's taught us that women's ordinations are all right. Now He's, you know, there's, a, there's progressive things the Lord is speaking to us through the Scriptures. And so it's a, a liberal Catholicism, but they hang on to bells and smells and candles and robes and religiosity. Mm. And of course it's dead and dying. 25% of these figures aren't accurate, but they're pretty. 25% of the Diocese of Adelaide goes to one church. 25% of the Diocese of Perth goes to one church. They were evangelicals. And every year the numbers going to the high church are drying. Because it's all connected to the British Empire. Well, it's gone. Mm. It's all connected to Anglophiles. Well, they're getting older. <laughs> the new Australia is multicultural. And anyway, why go to church when church doesn't believe anything different to society? Go Yeah, go to the beach, go watch TV. There's no reason to go there. They think, well, you go because you've come to worship God. But they also believe you can worship God in a bushwalk. Well, I'll go to the bushwalk. Mm, and so there was a 19th century romance about medieval times, King Arthur's Knights and all that kind of thing. Well, King Arthur's Knights have got no pull on 21st century Australian youth. Who cares about King Arthur? Whereas 19th century English people, you know, well, my father was named Arthur. You know, I mean, Arthur was... The Arthurian, those legends were really important. Totally unimportant. So high church practices are killing Anglicanism. But they won't let evangelicals take their churches. They'd rather close the church, sell the property, than ever let an evangelical come and do it. Where we are, we're worse than death. We're the judgment of God on them. And so you've got all these churches scattered all across Australia, uh, but there's only a few places where you can have evangelicalism, such as Sydney. The Diocese of Armidale was like that, and John Chapman went up there as a teacher, and the, the bishop up there really loved him because John and he were the only two members of the Labour Party in the Anglican Church of New England. And so they had this in common, they were members of the Labour Party. Um, and he liked Chapo because Chapo was a warm, friendly, funny man, you see. 
And so he couldn't get anybody to go and work in New England. So he asked Chapo, who then got lots of Sydney clergy to come up, more college men to come up. And when it came to his uh, retirement, the election, synod election was happened and the Liberal Catholics fought with each other. And because they couldn't agree on their candidate, the Evangelical, who was only a third candidate, got elected. Mm -hmm. And then they did a very stupid thing. They resigned in protest. So then they brought all the rest of the Evangelicals in too and so the whole pack. So in the 1960s, that diocese became Evangelical, which was really good for New England, but it put Evangelicals everywhere else in Australia behind the screen because everyone said, well, we don't want Armidale here. So it actually put everybody's backs up. Now down Tasmania, they've elected an evangelical now as bishop because there were so many of the clergy uh, before the courts for pedophilia that the lay people said, we're sick of these liberal Catholics, let's try something different and brought an evangelical. So that is how it's happened. That's why, you know, CMS connects in with Martoma Church. So the Martoma people who come to Sydney suddenly connecting with the Anglicans because, well, that, that's come from the same end of the, of the Anglican spectrum. From there to here.